Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University, Detroit, Michigan. My name is Dan Galadner. I'll be your host today. Um, now we have something completely different from all the other podcasts we've done because you know what we're talking about today, Troy? Buildings. Troy, do you ever think we'd be talking about architecture here? Um, yes. Did you really? Because I knew about this collection. Oh, see, I never thought we'd ever actually be talking about architecture. But that's how deep our collections go, right? Our collections run deep. Very deep. We have everything, as you know, with labor, urban affairs, and with urban affairs, Troy? Buildings. That's right. <laughs> now, famous American architects have, are littered across the United States. Franklin Lloyd Wright. Yes. You ever been to Falling Water? I have not, sadly. But you've seen his buildings around town. They're even around here. I have. Yeah, they're really cool. Um, He was, was, of course, the one that incorporated nature into everything that he did. Philip Johnson. You know about Philip Johnson? Uh, No. Uh, Minimalist architect. Very flat lines. Large glass. So it looks like you're actually in the woods. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you do know about Albert Kahn. Of course. Yes, Albert Kahn was the foremost American architect who revolutionized um, the the industrial um, factories by using that reinforced concrete and windows that brought light to the workers. But today we're going to talk about another Detroit architecture. Who is that? Minoru Yamasaki. He's world famous. We all know his stuff. Um, uh, Century Plaza in Los Angeles, Seattle, Japan, Saudi Arabia. Um, most famous, of course, is the World Trade Center buildings. Um, they were completely symbolic of America, of the world. They're iconic um, before they were destroyed. Um, ironically, he built them as a symbol to world peace. So I thought that was quite interesting. But he's really famous here in Detroit. He built, uh, or not he didn't build, he designed four buildings here on Wayne State's campus. Uh, do you want to name them all, Troy? Sure. Oh, cool. Do you know <laughs> which ones? Uh, there's the McGregor Conference Center. There's the Education Building, Prentice Hall, and the DeRoy Auditorium. Boom. Got them all. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> um, he created the buildings in the early 60s, and he wanted to incorporate the community with the university, since we are smack dab in the middle of Detroit, right? So um, we're going to talk to Shay Rafferty. She's our labor and urban affairs archivist. Basically, she takes, she takes care of all the collections that no one else wants to take care of. <laughs> she has a huge job. And, of course, our illustrious Allison Stancroft. So anyway, we're going to talk to these two experts. Should we get going, Troy? We shall. Hi, Shay. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Dan. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, can we call him Yami? Or Yama? Yama. Yama, okay. Friends called him Yama. Are we friends? I think we're best friends. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so a little bit about Yama. Uh, so he was born in 1912 in Seattle. Uh, he was first generation of Japanese-American immigrant parents. Uh, he grew up there and put himself through college, wanted to be an architect by uh, working in salmon canneries in, in Alaska. 
Uh, he worked really hard trying to build himself up into the architecture uh, field at a time when there was a lot of discrimination against Japanese Americans. Uh, ended up working in New York to get kind of farther away from that discrimination and became a really uh, prolific architect, really well-known around the world, uh, including uh, being the architect of the World Trade Center, which is probably one of his most famous buildings. Uh, he also has a ton of architecture around the Detroit area, which is what he's really well-known for. Yeah, cool guy. So how do you end up in Detroit then? Uh, so he took a job here in the 1940s. Uh, after leaving New York City and ended up really loving the area. He started a firm here with a couple of other colleagues and never left. Cool, cool. So Shay, you told me a story about uh, when he was working the canneries and kind of it helped to influence his, his art. Could, could you uh, elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so he worked there from 1929 through 1934, like during the summers, to help support his uh, college education, make money to pay for it. But it was like some terrible, terrible working conditions. It was like depression era. So they were making $50 a month working, you know, 16 to 18 hour days. And kind of like the drudgery of that experience, I think he has claimed has really pushed him to be convinced that life could be lived more beautifully and kind of really influenced a lot of his work down the road, always wanting to make sure that workers and buildings had, um, something nice to look at or, you know, better aesthetics. Uh, I think that also kind of carried forward uh, when his one of his first big projects in Missouri, Pruitt-Igo in St. Louis, was a bunch of residential buildings for low-income housing. And I think the project kind of shifted away from what he originally had planned it to be. Uh, more people got packed in and the, some of the grounds, there was less funding to make them beautiful. So I think it ended up being kind of not a beautiful place that he created, and I think it was one of the, his least favorite projects. So that kind of like influenced how his future work would be, have more control of incorporating the beauty in urban areas? Yeah, it became a lot more important to him, and I think he kind of bigger emphasis on never backing down away from that again. Um, what kind of architecture is he known for? He's definitely known for his uh, work in modernist architecture. Uh, it's a very unique kind of style that he has on his, his own spin on it. It has a lot of uh, different influences from Japan and other countries. He went on a worldwide tour uh, actually shortly before he kind of came to the Detroit area. And I think it really influenced a lot of his work. So even as a modernist, he has his own spin on it. So what international things did he do? Uh, so he's worked all over the world. He's worked. Uh, he built the U.S. consulate in Kobe, Japan. He's built uh, the Daran Air Terminal in Saudi Arabia. It's actually really well known in that country, and it's on their featured on their currency. Uh, he's built things in Spain, Iran, India. He's uh, built residences in Hawaii, Montgomery Ward headquarters in Chicago. So he's been all over the place. Cool, very cool. What kind of buildings would we recognize in Detroit? Uh, he has four buildings on campus at Wayne State University, and they're very well-known, very iconic on the campus. He's also built uh, the Temple Bethel in Birmingham, which is really well-known in the area as well. One Woodward? Yeah, he's built uh, one Woodward in Detroit. Okay, so he's had basically his, a majority of his career here in Detroit. How did Wayne State University, the Ruther Library, known for labor and urban affairs, end up with his historical collection? Yeah, so his children decided to donate this collection in 2010 uh, after he passed away. They had been storing it for a while and 
would let, wanted it to be accessible to more people. So it was brought through various connections through Wayne State. He had a long history of working with Wayne State, and they knew it was um, a place he had a lot of close ties to. Uh, the collection's 38 linear feet. Heavily kind of focuses on correspondence between colleagues, work papers, uh, a lot of his projects, and kind of the construction of them, along with some of his travel. You can definitely see correspondence between some of his old business partners and kind of the good and bad elements of that, which is really interesting to kind of go through. A lot of invitations on uh, speaking events and kind of show his importance to the, the Michigan and Detroit area communities. So those are all very cool. We also have some of his early architectural drawings, a lot of photographs of his projects and of himself, speeches, some of his own writings, including some autobiography material, which is really interesting and kind of very unique. That's cool. Yeah. Um, what kind of what kind of researchers are using his collection? Yeah, so we've had a number of researchers come, even from Europe and Japan, to come research. A lot of them are looking for information specifically about Yamasaki and his projects. The World Trade Center is a very um, popular topic, especially in the past couple of decades, and so that's received a lot of attention as well. So a lot of it's about specific buildings that he's worked on. Well, that's a great addition to all the other stuff. That's excellent. Yeah, yeah, it fits in well with the campus, and we have the buildings on display here, so what better place to kind of tie in? Perfect. Okay, thanks, Shay. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Allison, thanks for joining us. I'm so glad to be here. I know you are. So as a university archivist, you're responsible for the university collections, but we thought we'd talk to you about a little bigger thing than this paper is the buildings of Wayne State University, and specifically Yamasaki's buildings. So Huge contribution to our Beautiful Wayne State campus. I know. They're great. That was one of the first things I recognized when I came on campus when I first got here. Mm-hmm. What's this big McGregor building and why does it have a big pond in front of it? You know, So can you describe the building for us or talk about the building itself, if you don't mind? Sure. So McGregor Center was Yamazaki's first building at the Wayne State campus. It was built in 1958, and he really saw it as a bridge between the community and the campus. So the building's doors were designed in cast aluminum by sculptor Lee Dussel. And there's a great quote from Yamazaki where he says of the doors, you don't see into the building right away. There's a moment of mystery. Then you open them up and you see everything. And the interior, of course, is absolutely lovely. He really pulled out all the stops in terms of the materials. He used marble, teak wood, white plaster, which, you know, who knows how much that cost, black leather, glass, and he put a lot of pride into creating a, quote, turkey red carpet that kind of brightens up that already beautiful interior. McGregor was one of the very first buildings that really got Yamazaki's style known. It really marked the beginning of Yamazaki's national and international reputation. So McGregor is not only a beautiful building, but it's notable to Yama as well. It's also notable because the Wayne State University president at the time William Keast, he had a real vision for the campus, uh, which (laughs) may or may not be wholly good. 
that is arguable. Uh, you know, he was key in mowing down a lot of the buildings around the neighborhood and eminent domain to a lot of people who didn't necessarily agree with giving up their homes to build the university. But that is not key to Yamazaki. He really saw McGregor as that place of connection between the community and the campus. And I think the the opening event at McGregor really underlines that. It was a forum that was open to the community. Yeah, I like that it was at the McGregor opening. He spoke about architecture for the universities and yeah. incorporating back into what the universe can give back to the city and the city can give back to the university via architecture. Yeah. So let's talk about I, another building was the College of Education. Mm-hmm. Back when it was being built, the largest grad program was the College of Education. Yes. And interestingly, and it's very important both in terms of Yamazaki and, and his important footprint here as a campus, but also just super important for Wayne State in general. At that time, the Wayne State School of Education was the largest in America. Really? Which is surprising, That's actually. very surprising. Yeah. And so previous to the building of the College of Education, students were absolutely overcrowded in every class they took. And staff and faculty were splayed across campus and and sort of haphazardly crammed across 12 different buildings on campus. It was very hard to have a conducive program for everyone who was a part of it. So Yamazaki really helped solve that that problem logistically for the university in the process of making a beautiful building. So so describe the, the architecture for the College of Ed. Yeah, College of Education building took an interesting turn in terms of Yamazaki's art because it was the first time that he used a repeating arch in the way he did subsequent to that. And what he wanted to focus on was have it echo... Venetian arches, and students called it the Palace of the Doges. Our students are so educated, they know (laughs) that. (laughs) What's beautiful about it, I didn't know about this building as well, is that it has rooftop gardens. Yes. Are they still functioning? That is a good question. I know that in 1981, the Campus Beautification Committee worked to update them, and so it is highly possible that they sort of went into disuse. There are some really great shots um, from the South End, our student newspaper of Wayne State students sunning themselves up at the newly refurbished gardens up on the rooftop, which is pretty cool. Well, if it's not going now, the podcast will like, you know, hopefully everybody will hear about this and want to get those roof gardens going again. Because not only does it cut, you know, you can get some gardens, but it cuts down on, you know, air conditioning use, all that kind of cool stuff. But um, remind me, when you said they were sunning, the students were sunning themselves, I remember reading something that the faculty were complaining about the building. Yes, they were. And interesting about this building is that um, Yama built 
the classrooms as <laughs> having no windows, uh, whereas the floor-to-ceiling windows for staff and faculty, and some loved that, and, you know, his idea that this obviously, you know, windows in and windows out, everybody gets to see what everybody's doing. It's a, it's a high point of the campus. Uh, some complained that there was too much sunlight. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can't. I, I, I suppose you can't please everyone. I guess you can't, no. Yeah. That's a funny thing to complain about. It's interesting, though, that why, why did windowless and enclosed areas for students in this architecture? Yeah, so that was, that was definitely part of the plan. Now, obviously, it would be terribly out of date, but the building at the time, the classrooms were outfitted with the most up-to-date audiovisual equipment in order to help every class and and be conducive to learning. The idea was to cut down on any sound interference by having no windows. <laughs> I, I'd be curious to know what the students themselves thought of that. I, know, I didn't I would like come to hear, yeah. <laughs> across <laughs> any of that. Okay. And also they had carpeting, like floor-to-ceiling, and that was in oh, lieu floor to of, ceiling. Yeah, and and that was in lieu of acoustical tiles because those would be prohibitively expensive. That reminds me of the Graceland with the, the Jungle Room. Elvis <laughs> had the Jungle Room as floor to ceiling. Awesome. Tiles. All right, so the last two buildings that are on campus are near and dear to us because it's right next door, and yes. that's the Prentice Building. And uh, why don't you just describe that building for us? Because I, I walk by it every day. Yeah, it's a beautiful building. Um, and I've always loved it, both as a Wayne State student myself and now as a professional employee. So the Prentice building was built in 1964. It's built in partnership with sort of its its twin, which is the Helen DeRoy Auditorium. And they were absolutely built to be partners on campus. And they're both really lovely. So are the buildings, all right, I look at them every day. I don't see it anymore. But you're saying they're related to each other in a way? Yeah. Are the architecture the same or just they complement each other? They complement each other. And um, Yamazaki was um, built that partnership and sort of that that. Not necessarily a, a pure reflection, but sort of yin and yang together. And the Prentice, you were saying, complement each other because Prentice was flat, and DeRoy is more of the Gothic? Yes. And DeRoy is surrounded by the water. By the water element. See, that's mm-hmm. very cool. Yeah. You know, it sort of echoes as well McGregor and its beautiful garden. It's notable that obviously these buildings are all named after someone who um, gave the university a lot of money. Prentice was a longtime General Motors executive, and he was also very key in the Jewish community in Metro Detroit. It's notable that we have several of the collections that Prentice is 
part of because he was such an important part of the Detroit community in general and the Jewish community specifically. They were both completed in 1964. And sort of interestingly, (laughs) apparently they had to work out the, the money situation of the donation. Legally at first, the Prentice Building had to be called the University Hall, and it could not be named the Prentice Building. And But later that year, the money came through, and then they were able to name it the Prentice Building officially. Um, Helen DeRoy was also obviously a major benefactor and active in the Detroit community. She was also active in the Jewish community, Um, For a very long time, we have a fantastic picture from 1939 when the third Temple Bethel building, which is close to where I live on Woodward, ground was being broken for that. And obviously it echoes, you know, Yama's um, next iteration of that out in the suburbs, which is interesting. That Helen DeRoy was one of the folks in line breaking the ground with a ceremonial shovel. Uh, she her, was everywhere. She was everywhere. B- big, big gun. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks for letting us know about this stuff. Glad to do it. It's much fun. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neering. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. I, that I it, it gets stuck in my head you, at you, home. You dream about it at night, don't you? I'm washing the dishes. <laughs> so thank you very much, Bart Bilmer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right, yama 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 yama. How do you pronounce his first name? Minoro. 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 Minoru. Minoro. Minoro. You sure? Meh. <laughs> Minoro. Because it's a U at the end. Yeah. Minoro. 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 All right, we'll go with that. Minoru. 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 Are you recording? Of course I am. I, mean, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs>